and he has no fingers on his left hand. He's just like got a, a stump like this, no fingers. Oh and then God. on his right hand, he only has his index his trigger his finger. <laughs> just these two. Like, so he's got like a little claw hand and then like just nubs on the other one. And he's like blind in one eye. And his whole thing is that he's just like, I'm the ultimate survivor. I do anything to survive. <laughs> Like tearing off my fingers to stay out of the sulfur mines, you know? Do you have that dedication? He's just got these like nubs, dude. And he's like terrifying because yeah. he's got these like nubs and he's like, I'll do anything to survive. It's fucking awesome, dude. dude. That rip. I'll never forget when that movie came out because my dad really likes those books and he was so stuck on the casting of Tom Cruise and he was like really somber and saying, like, they make such a point in these books about Jack Reacher being a tall man. He's a very very tall man. Tom Cruise is not a tall man. <laughs> and there was like... That's fair play. Yeah. There was like a melancholy to it because those books were so important to him. Yeah. Well, dude. <laughs> like they're doing Jack Reacher wrong. Yeah, and then they cast a five foot two actor. You know? Right. <laughs> oh, my God. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and I'm here with... Andrew Stasiulis. And... Ryan Saunders. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast where one of the hosts picks a theme for the week and the other two hosts pick films in response to that theme. Uh, And it was my turn to pick. And as I talked about on the last episode, I was inspired by the 2006 film The Lake House to uh, make the topic films about architects. Just kind of a compulsion. I have no particular (laughs) attraction to the role of architect, although uh, I guess as a filmmaker, I'm drawn to anyone who uh, creates, you know? So that was the topic for for the week. And uh, of course, you know, I don't know what I expected, but... uh, Not this. This certainly wasn't what I expected (laughs) uh, when I had the topic in my mind. So let's get into the films. Uh, Ryan, why don't you tell us what you brought first? Well, I went on a bit of a a deep dive here. I I had the benefit of knowing the film that Andy was selecting, and I, when I had known that what he was picking, I thought like, oh, that's, you know, people have seen that. That's a well-known film. That'll get some, maybe get some clicks on our episode. This is a good idea. And I thought, well, maybe I could use this opportunity then to (laughs) find something that truly almost no one has seen. How deep can I go? And I sort of like let that, uh, I became uninhibited. I thought, well, as I search for architect movies, like nothing will stop me. Like let's let's see what I could find. Uh, and I did come across something that is uh, extremely obscure and esoteric, even by my own standards. And that is the film Archipelago from 1992, a Chilean film by the director Pablo Perelman. And it tells the story of a professor who is a professor of architecture in Chile, and after a raid by the government as he's in a student group meeting he is shot 
in the head. And the film then tells the story of his exile or escape to the Chiloe Archipelago, where he sets up shop all while having uh, a bullet hole that occasionally bleeds, um, and sort of is like, he's on a death journey of sorts as he's tasked with reconstructing an old Jesuit church uh, on one of these islands. But as he's sort of tasked with that, he also starts learning about the now extinct indigenous population of the Chono people. And then the film, I mean, th that's sort of like essentially what the film, the film's plot is, I guess you could say. But in reality, the experience of this film is a ghost of a man, a ghost of an architect floating through all of these different spaces, both in scenes that seem quite realistic as he's taking on his new job, working on the church and thinking about architecture, but then also he has these visions of being out with the Chono people and encountering the Spanish colonists. Um, and then the film kind of expands and breathes with all of these factors in mind as it becomes a look at both the colonial history of South America and then also contemporary politics and fascist governments sort of taking over. It's an odyssey. And uh, yeah, it's one I'm excited to unpack. It's a unique film. I, I, you know, it is a film that is also publicly available. So what I'm going to do, you know, after this episode gets posted, is I'm going to check the logs on Letterboxd to make sure that the, you know, the real gauntlet superheads uh, check out this film because it is available for free on a Chilean Cinematheque website, uh, and it's a pretty cool-looking copy. So yeah, that is Archipelago from 1992. Thank you, Ryan. Andy, why don't you tell us about a different sort of odyssey? I, um, you know, was was racking my brain to uh, to find characters that were architects, and and of course, you know, the first one that popped into my mind was you know the the, the greatest architect in cinema history. Uh, Paul Kersey, Charles Bronson, and Death Wish. But, you know, we're all very familiar with Death Wish. We're all Bronson heads here. So, you know, I definitely didn't want to go go that obvious with my choice. So I, uh, upon reflection, uh, it just sort of popped back into my, my head that the three of us had all had a really wonderful experience, but also a very bizarre and interesting experience seeing a movie about an architect together at the Music Box Theater several years ago. And that architect is Matt Dillon, who plays Jack, the uh, title character, the architect slash serial killer of Lars von Trier's 2018 film, The House That Jack Built. So I sort of chose this one simply because we all uh, experienced it together on the big screen, and I recall us all having very strong reactions at the time as, as the sellout crowd of their 746-seat theater did. Uh, it was a very interesting night. And as Marsh sort of pointed out, it's on a certain level kind of the, the gauntlet origin story, you know, a gauntlet origin story, you know, <laughs> from, from the before times. So it just seemed like a, a sentimental choice for, for us as well. If a Lars von Trier film can be can be described in any way as a as a sentimental experience <laughs> but it's one that i hadn't seen since that night so uh i felt i was due for a re rewatch and this would be the the perfect opportunity 
to do so. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, the film follows Matt Dillon, who plays, as I mentioned, Jack, who is a, an, an engineer uh, who describes himself as a, a failed architect. It's kind of an aspiring architect. Yeah, he's, uh, being an architect is his dream, right? And uh, the film uh, opens with his character in total darkness, in conversation with another man played uh, by Bruno Gantz, who reveals himself to be, we discover, uh, the poet Virgil, the, the Roman poet Virgil. And as we discover, they're sort of wandering through the circles of hell as Jack recounts the story of his life, the story of his, of his, his growth, his development, his maturation, as a serial killer and wannabe architect, and uh, he he recounts the 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 story of his of his journey through several incidents, five incidents. It is a very very uh, controversial film. It certainly was when it came out. It's a uh, in-your-face, very provocative experience, but I think also a very fun experience at times. It is also for me. You know, I, I like to give it a, an alternative title. Uh, I call this the, the Confessions of Lars von Trier because on a certain level, it's really a film about him and about his creative process. And he's sort of using the, the serial killer slash architect as, as a stand-in for, for his, his journey in life as, a, as an artist, as a creator, as a, as a director. And on a certain level, it's also oddly maybe his most personal film for me uh really this is this is him laying it all out we can get into some of the reasons why he might have felt he needed to with this film you know things he he felt he needed to address after a particular point in his career and so it's uh it's yeah it's uh it's a big old big old weird trip into Lars von Trier's uh imagination that's uh the house that Jack built Thank you. Well, first, I guess I want to just muse uh, about, about architects in cinema. Because I was thinking, you know, uh, I hadn't really thought too hard about the topic until it was selected. And I'm thinking like, shit, what am I going to say about architects? Like, I don't know anything about it. <laughs> and then, you know, I was thinking of the, the famous portrayals of architects. And, and, you know, you think about things like the Fountainhead or the Black Cat where, like, the architect is a stand-in for a control freak or a, an authoritarian or some kind of like... Or a libertarian Superman. <laughs> yeah, or a libertarian <laughs> Superman, right, uh, exactly. But then I also was thinking about, because Ryan had brought up the, the Chabrol film just before Nightfall, which I really love, and I was thinking then about Chabrol's use of the architect, which is like bourgeois scum you know like that's what an architect is just some rich guy you know that kind of angle and then i was thinking about like right george costanza mm -hmm. always you know sort of again like jack in in house of jack build aspiring to be an architect in his mind while doing nothing about it but just kind of <laughs> saying he's an architect or he wishes he was an architect because it sounds nice yeah. you know you get to design stuff and you're rich or whatever so i was kind of coming at it from that lens to see yeah like 
where does uh, where does that fit in with with these movies? And I think obviously the house that Jack built, it's yeah, a, an, an allegory for the filmmaker or the the artist, right? Uh, and then with Archipelago, it's yeah, obviously maybe a little murkier uh, and more confusing, but it it's also you know allows this guy to be in conversation with the past and colonialism and like opens up these certain angles on Chile and Chilean history, like by having him as this architect in the middle of it all. Mm -hmm. To that, to that point, this might uh, help even uh, with, with Archipelago uh, because it's very directly addressed in the house that Jack built, you know, like the film is, is a conversation uh, a, a nearly two and a half hour, hour conversation that that sort of ruminates on that very idea of you know what is an architect and and what's the difference between an architect and an engineer right but but in the beginning of the house that Jack built there is this this nice moment where he is kind of theorizing the architect and what the architect is interested in and what architects stand for and there's a, a specific word that's used in the house that Jack built that I really like. Uh, and Matt Dillon's character says, you know, an architect is interested in statics. You know, an architect is interested in, in, in putting something up that's going to stand in place, that's going to stay in place. And the great works of architecture are those that, that stand for a very long time that have this, this great legacy. So, you know, thinking about it in, in the terms of, you know, Archipelago, it does make sense if you think about it in those terms, right? Because there is like a building that that he keeps coming back to in his mind, a more modern, uh, you know, building that he seems very proud of. But there's also those cathedrals, those churches, those missions mm-hmm. that he's taking part in, and and some of those have have uh, a much much longer lifespan than this modern apartment building, and and they stand, and it's that. That idea of standing through and across time that I think drives much of the hallucinatory journey of, of you know, exploring the country, the, the culture, the people uh, who have gone through so many different traumatic episodes in the history of this place. I also think it's about the way that there are intentions for spaces and the architects have ideas on what these buildings will provide, what uses they'll have, and obviously they're hopeful for these buildings, but then also the evils that could happen inside of these buildings or the things that they never intended would happen. And that's like twofold in Archipelago, where there's the fact that he is shot in the head (laughs) amongst his students in a building of his his own design. And then there's also many other evils that have occurred in this Jesuit church that without burying the lead here, you know, we'll, we'll talk about later. And then of course, with Jack, there's also that tension and it's kind of a running gag throughout the film about the idea of, well, here's this house clearly being created out of evil intentions. We have the architect who is a serial killer, but then that's twofold then as the filmmaker, like what are the intentions of making this type of work that can be seen as evil 
or is deliberately provocative. So I think that that's an element that both films play with, but in radically different ways. I thought it was interesting, too, because as I was, you know, ruminating on this, I remembered there's two very famous quotes from film directors about architecture. And one of them is John Ford, who said, people are incorrect to compare a director to an author. If he's a creator, he's more like an architect, and an architect conceives his plans according to precise circumstances. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, famously, Fassbinder, you know, said that he was building a house with his films, and that combined, you know, in total, his films are, yes, uh, this house, the, the house of Fassbinder. And I'm sure that a part of it for Von Trier in, in this case is like specifically riffing off of that, that statement of, yeah, of Fassbinder. Right? Yeah. You know, Von Trier is, is no stranger to Fassbinder in many respects uh, in, in so many different ways. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, it, it seems very appropriate then that that was like the choice of, of profession for for Von Trier, you know, to, to, to be the stand-in, you know, what, what would it have been other than an architect, right? But Von Trier also makes a very important point that reminds me of, of the, the John Ford quotation you, you just gave us, Marsh, where, you know, he, he specifically tries to draw a distinction between an engineer and an architect, you know, for me, even like what I could come up with is that the, the idea of the engineer, which, Jack settled on, you know, Jack didn't become the architect. He settled on becoming an engineer because on a certain level, an engineer is seen somehow as more practical, a choice of, you know, profession that an engineer is like, well, yes, but how are we going to build it? Whereas the architect is perhaps more of the dreamer, more of the creative, more of the artist, really more of the, 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 the designer, Right. Yeah, the difference between a uh, an auteur and a metteur en scène. I mean, he does say, right, you know, later in the film, uh, an engineer reads music, an architect plays music, right, as like drawing out that distinction. And and yeah, I was thinking also about the Ford quote, thinking about, you know, Ford being like, yeah, it should be very precise, and then thinking he wouldn't think very highly of Jack's work, or, <laughs> or, or especially Lars's work, perhaps. No, no. <laughs> yeah. He would maybe admire Jack's efforts at precision, but uh, certainly not in the execution. <laughs> no, he's more of a more of an improviser. Yeah. That's true. Which is also funny because I'm sure you two might have also come across this, but it really surprised me when I was just looking up more of Von Trier's thoughts on his film and, and some of the choices and decisions he made. And he was talking about how Hitchcock was a was a big driving force for him, you know, like what would Hitch do? And and he was talking about how, you know, he, he wanted to have a sort of classic Hitchcockian approach to the ending, particularly, but but I also think throughout a lot of the film. Uh, and Hitchcock was another very precise, very precise planner and designer of of every facet of his films. You know, I often think of like Hitchcock films in a similar way that it is just this perfectly designed structure. Every angle's been measured and thought out. You know, Hitchcock isn't known for his improvisational flair. It's, it's that we have a blueprint 
and we are referring to that blueprint constantly because if any measurement is off in the slightest, it could fuck up the, the foundation of the building, you know? It'll crumble, it'll fall. And I think it's a testament to why some of those those filmmakers, you know, those classical filmmakers who probably did think in much more precise terms with their filmmaking, like why their movies do endure, why they do stand the test of time, uh, where others seem to get, you know, blown over in the first, you know, windstorm that comes along. <laughs> Blowing the films away. It is funny thinking about his admiration of that type of precision and him consciously thinking about precision as it relates to an architect and then remembering how much his visual style could be argued to be imprecise and how mm -hmm. it is kind of chaotic and his mise-en-scene is very much just him there in the moment moving the camera around pretty emotionally as opposed to something that is arranged and planned out. I mean, the camera doesn't really end up on a tripod until the final sequences of the film, mm -hmm. um, except if there's an establishing wide of some sort. Yeah, there's like a repeated and in fact Hitchcockian wide shot of the apartment complex that uh, uh, mm. Riley Keough lives in when he's like carrying the body and that's like one of the only tripod shots until in the entire film until the end. And I was, I was thinking about that a lot. Like it is, you know, like many Von Trier films, just like sloppy yeah. uh, and sloppy on, on purpose, you know? And it does of course, like reflect Jack and his psyche, right? He's an agitated guy. He's, he's high strung in many ways. Uh, and he's also, yes, this like sociopath, but it's got, you know, jump cuts. It's very agitated editing. It's handheld camera, like the entire time for the most part. So it does resemble Jack's kind of blundering nature because that's one of the, you know, the cosmic jokes of the film is he certainly is no great genius. You know, it's kind of a, kind of a dumbass, but he, has a lot of luck. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very lucky. Yeah. I had forgotten how much the visual style changes between the different incidents as well. Um, they had all sort of, I mean, I had remembered each one very specifically, but the, the way the film had looked had sort of blurred together in my mind. But there is a pretty significant difference um, in terms of how each one looks, uh, largely dependent on the setting and the type of light that was available. Yeah, and it isn't even just the, the visual style. It's like each incident, you know, they, they all have very different tones as well. You know, mm -hmm. each incident is a different stage and a different sequence unto itself. And, you know, this film is about Von Trier. I mean, this film is about his development. As much as it's about, you know, Jack the serial killer, it's, it's, about, it's about him. And, and each of those stages, for me, uh, when you really examine them, they, they represent, I believe, like, Von Trier addressing, like, specific points in his career and his development as a filmmaker. And I think that if you actually dive into them, you can unpack them and you can really see like the connections to these different periods of his own process and his approaches to filmmaking. It's, it's the same kind of approach of being like, well, I'm gonna try this with this film and now I'm gonna do a couple films like this and now I'm done with that. Now I'm just gonna have a computer make a movie or whatever, right? So 
you see that same sense of just sort of experimentation and trying things out and feeling your way through processes and some click and some work out better than others. And, and I think Von Trier is also acknowledging that, that there's this also this, this bit of luck or this, this almost kind of imposter syndrome of, of, I don't know how I'm still making movies. I don't know how I'm getting through this. Like I should have been found out already. I should have been called out for this shit by now, you know, but here I am, I'm, I'm still enduring. And I think that carries throughout the film. That's funny. I think there is an element of luck there too. And I see what you mean when terms of his imposter syndrome and trying different things out, because I do even still, I, I thought this the first time and I still think it again, that there, it's like a pretty uneven film um, in terms of some incidents, I think excelling a lot more than some of the others. Like I generally like them all, but I mean, even just thinking about incident number two, I remember my reaction after the film was like, that could have been released as a short film mm -hmm. and it would have been like one of my favorite short films I've seen in a long time. Oh. God, yeah. It's such a, like, a precise and hilarious bit of the film. Yeah, may, may, may I uh, come in? I'd like to see a police badge. Well, so would I. Unfortunately, that today is going to be a bit of a problem. Now, <clears throat> I can tell by your expression you think it's a bad thing that I don't have my police badge on me. Right. Well, I'm here to tell you that it's a, it's a good thing for the police department. And I'm not going to lie to you, okay? It also happens to be a good thing for me on a personal level. Yeah. You see my, my badge? It's um, at the silversmith. Yeah, it's at the, the silversmith there. They're shining it up and um, adding a few additional citations to it. I've been promoted. It's also the most, like, clearly comedic and playful in the film. Yes. Now, people talk about the dark humor that, that kind of rides under the surface of this film throughout, but, but the second incident is, I think, the most... It's a straight-up comedy. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's just the, it's the most fun one, you yeah. know, for the audience. Uh, yeah, it's like the most accessible of all of them, you know, because I, I do love the way, though, he treads that line throughout, and that was something I feel that was very present at our screening when we went um, all those years ago, how, you know, anytime there was stuff involved with kids no one in the audience was laughing. Yeah. No one knew how to handle that. And I do think that those scenes are supposed to be explicitly humorous at times. And that's like what's so perverse about them. But I do viv very vividly remember that, how we were laughing during some of those darker moments with the children because it's presented as comedy. But then there were other moments where I felt horrified at what I was seeing on screen, um, particularly with Riley Keogh. And the audience was just laughing because they were so uncomfortable and they didn't know how to handle it. Yeah, or we were just in an audience surrounded by a bunch of Von Trier sickos, you know? And, well, yeah, absolutely. They, they were laughing at that really twisted shit because they're all fucked up and they hate women or whatever, you know? Yeah, like, I feel like I can still smell that night. Like, uh, the thing that comes through most vividly is the way the music box smelled with all of those Lars von Trier heads filling up the 750 seats, whatever it was. Oh, yeah, it was a dark, 
dark night of the soul. And I, I think I remember too, it was like winter. Wasn't it winter too? Wasn't it very... Yeah, and it was, uh, it was fall. No, it was winter. It was winter for sure because it was just before we went to New York with orders. There was also all of this like arbitrary controversy surrounding that particular set of screenings because it was presented as if it was a one night only of this director's cut. Like IFC didn't want to release it. Like they were fucking Lars von Trier over. So it was an act of protest that you could go and see the director's cut as Mm -hmm. he intended to see it. So with it, the way the film was advertised in that special one night only screening, I felt like there was it brought in that crowd of like kind of them all self-congratulating each other like here we are we're the edgy group we can handle Lars von Trier in his full uncut vision you know unbridled which is only like two minutes longer than the (laughs) uncut one yeah it's just like seeing a a a kid get his leg blown off and then another kid getting shot in the face or whatever well (laughs) look I think you bring up I think you bring up an interesting point though which is also yeah like this film is about the the Lars brand, you know? And certainly Lars von Trier, like any international auteur, is a brand, and he knows it as well, right? And yes, he's been a guy who has sought publicity throughout his career uh, by, by saying crazy things or, or doing crazy things and making crazy movies. So yeah, it, it is interesting, of course, that this film then is, yeah, it is kind of like looking back on all on all the on all the hits you know i mean he even like literally has like a greatest hits reel from his movies suddenly playing (laughs) you know near the end of the film where he's we get a full lvt montage of his own shit yeah yeah just suddenly in the middle of the film i mean it is like it's if that doesn't give it away you know yeah this is a movie about him and i i think as well like I feel like a lot of this film was born following like his his Ken controversy when he got banned for saying, you know, I'm a Nazi, you know, and and really, I, first of all, I think that controversy is sort of overblown. I think when you go and look at what he was saying, like, number one, like, yes, he's trying to be provocative. Uh, I think people sort of misread it. I think his delivery of these like sick jokes he was trying to make was just like really bad and no one was helping him out. And it just, he's sort of fumbling and, you know, remember English isn't his first language and he's a deadpan guy. And it just like, it came out horribly, horribly wrong, you know? And I'm not trying to defend Lars von Trier here, but I'm simply saying that I believe this film in many respects was something he felt he needed to make after this like, you know, ban from Ken and him being like, I need people to understand who I am and what drives me. And also like, he's got a chip on his shoulder and, and I mean, he also in the film, like, specifically addresses the Nazi comments and he's got to say like a whole segment where, you know, Jack is, is, is pontificating about, Albert Speer and fascism and Nazism and the aesthetics of art and the aesthetics of politics that, I mean, really does to me read like him being like, this is what I was trying to say (laughs) at Cannes. And and like, (laughs) now do you get it, dum-dums? Like, let me explain everything to you. So I think there's just like that, that just kind of overshadows the the film and it's funny thinking about now a few years away from when the film came out just thinking about 2018 and what 2018 was like and 
the climate for a new Lars von Trier movie in 2018 was stock was uh, low. Stock was low, you know? It was thinking about Weinstein at the end of 2017, and then it's like we have a year of explosive Me Too in the in the entertainment industry, and it's like, of all people to come forward and, like, present himself as, like, that provocative man, Lars von Trier, it's like one of the Dude. last people you want to hear from. And again, this film, in its own way, tries to address those yes. as well. Like, it goes at those allegations, you know? There's this right. whole conversation about... You know, when Virgil, by the, the and this was Bruno Gantz who yes. plays, this was his last role, right? Yeah. yeah, I think it was shortly after this and that he died. And we all were like, wow, you know, what a fucking legend. But Bruno Gantz, like, you know, as Virgil is is the sort of, you know, the guy feeding him the questions, right? And And he says, you know, you said you chose random incidents and the incidents you've chosen so far all involve women and you seeming to present very stupid women and women who you feel on a certain level need to be punished or something. So, like, he has to respond to that as well. And so, well, well wait a second, hold on here, you know? So, so yeah, and, and also, Ryan, to your point about that that climate of 2018, do you two remember the, 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 at the, at the one night only screening, that weird um, video intro that he filmed for it? where he talked about Trump. He was talking about Trump in the the video intro. He called him he called him the rat king in the in the intro. Oh my god. And he was right. basically like, you know, down with Trump and this movie is an affront to all the things that like fascism stands for and you know, this you know, he a, I swear to god, he yeah. said something like fuck Trump. Hello you very brave people of America. I send you greetings from Denmark. I'm Lars, and you are about to see the house that Jack built. I hope you will enjoy, but let me say that this is a film designed to be digested over a couple of days. Good luck, and remember, never another Trump. You know, and everybody was like, whoa, in the theater. Like, and we all looked at each other like, what the fuck is that about, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so maybe it's also that, you know, that he's worried about getting Me Too. So he just like goes for the the the, the even bigger like target at the moment. And he's like, I'm with all you. Trump's a fascist. You know? <laughs> yeah, I feel like if I remember correctly, now, now that this is like video is coming back uh, into my brain, it, it, it wasn't that like all he addressed? He didn't talk about the film at all? <laughs> no, he like... Like, he explained that we were all seeing a version that nobody else was going to see. Like, he had that kind of like, hey, here's why we're doing this. Crazy. And I remember even us, we were like, you're one to talk. And then we were like, you're fucking, you, you won't even leave Denmark because you're afraid to fly. Like, what are you doing talking to us about American politics? Like, shut the fuck up, you know? And, then, know? and then we got, you know, basically, yeah, his long form essay about everything else on his mind in that movie. Right. But yeah, that <laughs> intro, I, I, I wonder if it's out there anyway. I'd I'm love sure to, is, yeah, so that, yeah, that weird video intro, but. Has he ever been to the United States? No. Which was very, yeah, and I'm old enough, Ryan, to remember when Dogville came out, right. uh, and there was actual uh, controversy, if I recall, because uh, I was, like, into, <laughs> into Von Trier in high school, and, you know, I was, like, so stoked for Dogville to come out, and there was a lot of that. Like people writing about it, going like, "He's never even been to America. How dare he criticize this place? He's portraying he's portraying America as a bad place. How could he do this? You know? Yeah. 
Unbelievable. (laughs) I thought it was so funny how there were like Seattle police cars um, in all of these scenes, like way outside of the city. Yeah, I think uh, they shot in like Sweden. Yeah, Yeah, they did. And there's like a there's a CGI Mount St. Helens in the background (laughs) at one point, which is super funny. That kicks ass. Oh, yeah. Yeah, But yeah, the Seattle PD, their uh, jurisdiction certainly doesn't go that far out of the city (laughs) as they do in (laughs) House that Jack built. Otherwise, though, very convincing look. It looks like the Pacific Northwest. I'm actually, it's quite impressive the way he, he chose a, a good time of year to do most of that. You know, your your point, too, about people kind of attacking Von Trier because he's like never been to America. It reminds me of, speaking of Hitchcock, uh, a story that Truffaut, Francois Truffaut, would tell about um, him like battling the critics who hated Rear Window. And, and he, he told the story once where, you know, all these critics, American critics were coming at Truffaut because Truffaut loved Rear Window and there were a bunch of American critics who didn't like it for whatever reason, felt it was like corny and phony and this, that and the other. And, and Truffaut said, they all attacked me and they said, you like this movie because you know nothing about New York. <laughs> and, and Truffaut was like, yes, that's true. I know nothing about New York, but I know about cinema. So it kind of like reminds me of the same thing, you know, it's like, sure. yeah, like Von Trier's movies don't exist in the fucking real world. Like, and he's never tried to convince anyone otherwise, you know, especially with things like Dogville. Yeah. He's explicitly trying to convince you that it's not, you know, right. like here's a movie that doesn't have sets. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're being yeah. reminded of it the whole time. Yeah. Like, yeah, it reminds me of what you said on our Caribbean episode, Andy, when we were talking about Shadas and we're just like, where does this party exist? And you said <laughs> in their minds. And honestly, <laughs> that is how you can read all of Lars von Trier's films. It's the architecture of his mind. It's these little houses that he's building. And you're only in von Trierland. You're not in anything that actually resembles the United States or any of the other places that he's riffing on yeah. to any like meaningful extent. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's, again, why I think this is, for me, like his most personal, because like, man, that's all this movie is. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a long running monologue. It's a long running essay. And yes, we, mm-hmm. we see a lot. It isn't all just talking and telling, but it sure is a lot of talking and telling and, and explaining and justifying and arguing. And this, like the the of course, yeah, like the the Virgil Jack voiceover conversation is like, yeah, him interrogating himself, you know. And I guess <laughs> even after seeing it a second time, I still like, did he let himself off pretty lightly? You know, I think I think he did, right? Oh yeah. Uh, but there mm-hmm. are, you know, again, like the yeah, the film. If you want to look at it plainly. It's a two and a half hour film of like what he thinks about art and artists. That's what it is. Yeah. And critics and, yeah, and everything else in his, <laughs> in his whole life. Yeah. yeah. It dawns on me now that it's like his intolerance, you know, because very famously, uh, Griffith was, you know, re- responding to the intolerance of other people's hostility towards birth of a nation in this very twisted way uh, where he felt aggrieved and like he had to expand upon his vision to show people, no, this is what I'm all about. Intolerance. 
not intolerance, but intolerance, the film, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and it is very, you know, he was, yeah, he was addressing the haters in that one. And I think this is a similar move. And I wouldn't be surprised if it maybe crossed Lars's mind. I'm sure he knows things about Griffith, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's funny you saying that he like maybe lets himself off the hook, but at the same time, he like, he doesn't necessarily get off that easy because he does condemn himself to the lowest pits of hell. Um, yeah. in that final moment where Jack doesn't successfully reach the other side of the space where there's a broken bridge and he thinks like, well, that's the stairway back up. You could get out of here. Otherwise, if you fall, that's the lowest depths of hell. And thinking about Jack as the surrogate for Lars von Trier and this discussion they both have, Jack and Virgil, the whole time, um, in a way, as the final closing argument, he does send himself down into sure, that but fiery it's easy, pit. Look, it's easy for a troll to go, I'm going to hell, you know, <laughs> I think at the end of it. And I love, look, That's for true. me, for me though, you're right. I think the last sequence of this film like makes this film much better Yes. Than it could have been otherwise if it was just the Jack serial killer stuff. I think the ending of this film does take it to another level as a cinematic experience and as a self-interrogation, right? So, uh, yeah, you know, he is aware. While watching it and we had reached that scene, the the finale, uh, this time around, I immediately flash back to seeing that in the music box because one of the elements of that is there's this horribly high-pitched screeching noise that is supposed to reflect like all of the screams of hell sort of compressed into this singular piercing audio bit and man like i think it's interesting especially since at this point the film shifts to a much more clean looking digital image most of the film is like really grainy low light all these digital artifacts mm -hmm. and then here it's it's lit it's it's all quite clear they look like nicer cameras or at least quote unquote nicer cameras by certain contemporary digital standards and but there's that yes yeah, so it's like a clean image but then that just grating and piercing noise and I remember thinking I was going to have a panic attack at the music box when that was happening because they played it so fucking loud I mean they've got mm -hmm. 700 plus people in there so they they crank it up as loud as they can get it and it that high pitch it just like was echoing throughout the whole theater and that sequence lasts at least 15 minutes right if not maybe it's like a long because it's all in slow motion and they're walking <laughs> mm -hmm. um but oh god yeah i remember i remember feeling like physical discomfort during that and, and in a way on reflection i still think it's kind of impressive because it's a film that gives you plenty of moments to feel emotional discomfort. Uh, and it's nice for him to just also like drill the film into your ears as well at the end. So it's an assault on all of the senses. And as I said, the room smelled quite bad too. So there was that. <laughs> it did. It <laughs> fucking reeked in there, man. Um, you know, and it's funny you put it in those terms because we've talked about uh, Artaud before and Artaud's theater of cruelty. And, and in a previous conversation we had about Artaud and his theater cruelty, we talked about how Artaud was like, well, it's not like cruelty. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's a more like theoretical idea of cruelty. Whereas I think Von Trier is someone who goes theater cruelty. We got to be cruel to the audience. You know, like he, he really puts the cruelty yeah. into it. You know, he's somebody that like probably just, like it came across them was like hell yeah like we gotta fuck with them man we gotta we gotta <laughs> we gotta rough them up and like right. that's the experience of many von Trier films and and there are also von Trier films that are like 
touching and emotional in a way and where elegant. and elegant yeah you know mm-hmm. but but this is you know he's he's upset <laughs> by the time we get to to this film and his career and and can we've often talked about how like Ken is so ridiculous the idea of like a hundred people walked out of the theater you know and I just always think of these Ken screenings where like it's part of the show the audience feel like they're part of the show and like the walkouts yeah. the walkouts like how many people walk out of movies only fucking assholes at Ken because they think it's part of the show and like there are some directors who play into that show and Von Trier is one of those guys like he wants the walkouts and he wants a lot of walkouts and he wants them walking out and yelling and pissed off you know like yeah well as he you know goes on in in the movie about uh, Blake's poem about the lamb and the tiger he says the tiger lives on blood and murder and kills the land and that is also the artist's nature (laughs) oh yes (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and I mean, it, 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 it probably would help if we kind of work through how these incidents, yeah. to me... The House of Lars. Yeah, the House of Lars, you know, so sort of like laying out these incidents and, you know, I'd like to maybe even present my reading of it to you and see what see what you folks think. But, <laughs> sure. you know, to me, if you look at the first incident that we're introduced to, you know, that, that Jack covers, um, you know, his character is just some guy and he's he's... He's driving down the road and he picks up a hitchhiker and that that hitchhiker is played by Uma Thurman and she is a woman whose car has broken down on the side of the road and uh, not only is her car broken down, she has a flat tire, uh, but her jack is broken as well. So right, right away we have Jack and a broken Jack. But uh, she kind of like ropes him into giving her a ride. A little bit of a back and forth where, you know, they go and he drives out of his way and he's annoyed and, and then they come back with the Jack after getting it fixed and the Jack breaks again and, and she's being, Uma Thurman's character is just being like, Weird. Just weird and like annoying. Again, in a way that's just like, yeah, it's not realistic. No one would treat anybody the way that. A totally artificial performance and very purposefully so. Right. And, you know, it's just to like piss him off, you know, and that's the point here. And then as he's driving with her, suddenly she's just like, you know, she starts talking to him about, you could be a serial killer for all I know. And she, she starts to kind of like plant the idea in his head that he's a murderer and he's a serial killer and she keeps bringing it up. And then at one point she finally is just like, you could never be a serial killer. You're too much of a wimp. And then he just grabs this broken jack and just smashes her in the face with it and just beats her to death in his car with the Jack. That's the first incident, his first killing. And, you know, to me, that's like Von Trier sort of addressing the idea of like the the impulsion, the impulsion to create, this lack of premeditation, that there's just this thing that, that sort of bubbles up inside you one day and you just, you throw something on a page, you, you throw something on a canvas, you bang on a piano, you know? You don't know where it's going and it's emotional. It's, it's sort of driven primarily by emotion. It's this very, like, messy, sloppy, impulsive first act uh, of, of creation. In this case, it's, of course, like, destruction and murder, but as we've said, the destruction and the murder in this film are, for him, the negative image of, of the creative act. So in his destruction of Uma Thurman's face, uh, and we get a pretty gnarly shot of her, like, caved-in skull at a certain point, he has done his first creative act, and he has no idea where it's going. The second incident, then, uh, is Jack 
uh, now premeditated. You know, he's thinking out his crime and he's going for it. And he just goes to this woman's house who is played by this great character actress that you've seen in a hundred movies. And she always manages to play the same character, just like a, a schlubby Midwestern woman, you know, here Jack goes and he has the plan to murder this woman. He goes to her house, this random woman, uh, and he is, he's fully prepared to, to just randomly kill someone. But in a comedic series of mishaps it's awkward and it's fumbling and we're also introduced to another like huge part of his character at this moment that jack is ocd and he's particularly compulsive about uh cleanliness and he says something along the lines of like you know i have this driving compulsion that i i i have to leave a clean room i cannot leave a room unless i'm sure it's like spotless so this second killing, we get treated to him you know, fumbling his way through a murder that he's, he's very much willing to commit and trying to commit and making a lot of mistakes and also a lot of mistakes uh, which are simply in his mind, you know, like he thinks he's made a mistake, but he actually hasn't and he's obsessing over that and he's constantly going back and forth. And to me, this is kind of like, you know, the ultimate conclusion he draws after this is that it's like, it's the imperfections that make it beautiful. It's the imperfections that make it good. You know, it's okay to be messy. And this kind of is when Von Trier, you know, following the, like the traumatic Europa trilogy of, of, you know, the beginning of his career, this like second phase where he starts to get into dogma and he starts going like, yeah, let's make dogma films. They got to be messy and disordered and the imperfections are what make these movies beautiful and sort of like embracing that allowing for mistakes embracing mistakes was liberating for him you know that's really the 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 force of the second incident it's like this completion anxiety this feeling like can't leave well enough alone right you, know? you got to keep going back and tinkering with it making right. another cut and i made a mistake and all he sees are the mistakes and then there's something beautiful about then how the thing that goes most wrong in a way, you know, the, like making a terrible mistake or having an error with your your magnum opus, sometimes that is the thing that is embraced most by the audience, right? Like it's these things that maybe irritate you and that's when people see life and reality in there. And that's sort of kind of addressed in that great gag where after he drives away with her body, dragging her behind the car, it leaves an extremely long blood trail <laughs> and it's that feel like like for miles right and it's that feeling of like oh my god like i thought i finally had all of this figured out but i've left a giant blood trail there's this there's this horrible element of the creative work i've put together here that was like a total oversight and yet there's the serendipity of rain coming down and it washes the blood away. And mm -hmm. it's sort of one of those things where it's like I see, you know, there is the creative process there. He, he can't focus on that entirely because sometimes these things have a way of working themselves out, mm -hmm. both in terms of the audience encountering your art and also just the way you present your art to people. Yeah, that's exactly it, you know, and, and again, that sense for him of of liberation in that moment. And it's in this 
messy, mistake-filled process that that he finds an inner peace. And also mm-hmm. in that luck, in the case of the film, he 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 then also sees like divine intervention. You know, I'm I'm supposed to do this. If I wasn't supposed to do this, they cops would have just followed this blood trail. It would have been it wouldn't have been washed away by the rain, you know? And then that pushes him into the third incident which is i call like his his formalist period his stylized (laughs) period yeah and it's a way it's like an artist having the courage to experiment with his work and coming up with set pieces and trying radically new things to see how they'll pan out well and as the you know the conversation back and forth between him and verge goes you know after the rainstorm washes away the blood trail he says now i don't consider myself a decidedly devoted man of faith which of course is a totally crazy thing to say considering our present situation, but I must admit, I experienced the rain, the fiercest I have ever seen, as a kind of a blessing. And the murder as a kind of liberation. I felt I had a higher protector. And in the reality, you were just a terrifying, perverted Satan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then that's when he's like, oh, but my re, then if you think that was perverted, wait till you get a load of this, you know, the third incident, which is, yeah, him then like playing that up, playing that perverted psycho up even more. And, and this is the, the really like the the part of the film that people consider most controversial. Like even I remember when this movie was coming out and everybody's like, this movie's sick, it's disgusting. It's like, look, there's <laughs> been plenty of movies about serial killers. Ask Rosenbaum about yeah. that, right? As we've said. Ever seen Criminal Minds? <laughs> yeah, come on, man. I, I was like, what are people talking about? But it's really this third incident. And that's the incident where he murders <laughs> in a very just ridiculous way, a single mother and her two children, you know, it's, it's sort of implied that he's been, you know, the character of Jack's been like dating this woman and he, he takes the the mother and her two boys out for a little picnic where he's also going to teach the boys a thing or two about hunting. And he goes through this big, you know, again, like essay monologue about the theories of hunting and what that all means. But really it just boils down to him, uh, just shooting two kids and a mom and then staging a picnic with the three of them. And again, if you think about like this third phase of Von Trier's career, this was when he was doing, you know, Dogville and Mandalay. And those are highly stylized, you know, formalist works, conceptual works. Conceptual works. And, and that's really the killing here. You know, this isn't an impulsive act. It's premeditated. It's got like theory behind it too, because he's like, you know, talking about these, yeah, like bourgeois hunting events in Europe and, you know, the, the trophy picnic. And he's like theorizing, right? So it's, it's gone beyond just preparation, but now it's, yeah, there's that extra element of he's reading things and discovering other information that's going to make his art better, right? So bringing in these other influences. Right. And he also makes a point in this incident to talk about like trophy hunting, the idea of trophy hunting. And he has this kind of like, 
yeah, these bourgeois idiots care about trophies and, and parading their trophies around. By this point in his career, when he's making Dogville and Mandalay and the more, you know, stylized work, he's already won a couple major awards. You know, he's he's now been a part of this, you know, high art house award sort of circle of of Ken and winning a Palm d'Or and getting nominated for all this stuff. And then him kind of being like, yeah, it's all bullshit though. You know, it's really just about being the sick pervert that I am. That's really what I get jazzed about. And then he's kind of like trying to, to make a joke out of that trophy hunting to, to make the trophy hunting itself the spectacle. Yeah, it really is, you know, an allegory for Ken. <laughs> yeah, you know, it really just is. Just this. <laughs> but I imagine, like, yes, for him, he engineered this particular incident to really go, you know, here's a big fucking middle finger right here. Yeah. And this is also the one moment in the film that I truly had forgotten about that made me laugh the most, which is that the one kid is named Grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> and and but like l- that also hints at a larger truth of this film that we've already hinted at which is there is also a sense that that von Trier is is shooting and stylizing these incidents to be as told by Jack like we are at no point ever seeing an objective moment of anything right because again as Virgil calls him out like aren't your characters thin isn't there a lot of coincidences and all this you know kind of calling out the the holes in his in his storytelling you do get the sense that yeah like of course the kid probably wasn't actually named fucking grumpy it's just like (laughs) he he was like that kid's he's grumpy you know and he's retelling the story and just calling but like the, the mom calls him grumpy, which like, yeah, adds that just like, yeah. And he doesn't seem like a particularly grumpy kid either. You know, he's just like suspicious of the man who was right. obviously a serial killer. He's like, I told you, I didn't want to go to this picnic. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it does have, uh, you know, a line in it that I, I, I laughed at because, you know, uh, it, it recalled for me the great moment in, uh, the wonderful film Judgment Night that that all three of us are a big fan of when when Emilio Estevez in a particularly emotional moment says, like, try and have a good fucking time tonight, you know? Like <laughs> the idea of like a party that's getting away from itself and a guy that's like, no, we're gonna have a good time, but he's very upset. Yeah. When it's like going bigger than life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When Matt Dillon says, this was supposed to be an enjoyable picnic, you know, (laughs) after all this, you know, this was supposed to be an enjoyable picnic. I love it. But but yeah, I mean, this was a moment in the theater that all three of us were laughing at. We were cackling at because I think even then we got the joke and and not like the joke of killing kids, but the joke of Von Trier deliberately designing something that was so over the top in terms of its shock value that it's like how can you not laugh at it it was it was very specifically though we weren't laughing at the just to clear the air here for the listeners we weren't (laughs) laughing at the shots of the children being shot and like the getting his leg blown off and his head blown off it was very specifically the shot that i think is designed as comedy and that is the picnic where jack forces the mother to pretend to feed food from her picnic basket like into the mouths of her dead mutilated children who are now like propped up very awkwardly um and it's very sunny and it's very colorful it's a perverse image and that is that there was crickets in the audience everyone was like truly had no idea how to react well look i i see a man trying to do a tableau vivant joke 
when, <laughs> when I when I see it. You know, I think that's funny. And there are there are several tableau vivant sort of moments in this film. Again, he's riffing on art because he's European, so he's bringing up all this shit he knows about. Mm-hmm. You know, he'd clearly been watching the the TV series Hannibal a little bit too. You yeah, know? with was, another Denmark I, friend is. You know? I honestly didn't think about that at all the first time. Oddly enough, but on rewatch, I was thinking, yeah, how. It's uh, there. Yeah, this is such post-Hannibal cinema. Oh, know? yeah. Mm-hmm. The influence yeah. and the, the, the Danish connection is there. I think we can all see yeah. that. But in a, in a strange way, it's kind of like, for me, in his own twisted, fucked-up psyche, like, what he thinks is is one of his most playful moments, right. I think. you know. I mean, yeah, you would like it. It's a joke about formalism, you know? Yeah. And I love yeah, that, too. <laughs> Why don't you give Grumpy a little pie? It's just, it's, I love it, dude. So then that pushes us into the the fourth incident. Yeah, where we enter Antichrist territory. Yeah, right. This is like the Depression trilogy now. This is Melancholia. This is Antichrist. This is him as the bad boy, you know, the sad boy, the goth boy. And like, this is now him as an artist after going through all this stuff, after putting himself out there, after feeling, after so many uh, experiments and, and attempts to reinvent himself that no one gets him now because this is his most like angry and and grudging and just mad and repulsive I mean yeah it is like mad from his perspective it is but it is like yeah the yuckiest section of the film I think it's maybe also his most self-critical moment you know uh at this point now he's got like a a black leather jacket on and he's carrying a crutch and he makes a big point about leaning on the crutch and using this crutch but that the crutch for him is also a prop you know and it's about people looking at him a certain way and getting a reaction that he wants but yeah this is then you know uh, an incident that's that just largely revolves around him and uh, his girlfriend at the time, as Ryan mentioned, played by Riley Keogh. It's really just an awful, very uncomfortable scene of like emotional abuse because he has this girlfriend who is is into him for whatever reason because he's Matt Dillon. Because he's yeah, he's Matt Dillon. Got the Jeffrey Dahmer vibe. Yeah, and the the nice leather jacket, and he looks like the bad boy. And she's into him, but he has nothing but contempt for her. And he's constantly belittling her. He refers to her as simple, like that's his nickname for her, simple. And that, you know, she just doesn't get him. She's an idiot. He's constantly setting up little word games to try to, like, embarrass her. And, And again, this is like me thinking, this is Von Trier, like, in his audience at this point, him being like, the audience are a bunch of swine. They don't get me. They don't understand what I'm going for. And I have, but but also again, like Von Trier deliberately making him look like a really big fucking piece of shit. You know, like that's that's the takeaway here that that he's like wrong for treating this woman this way. And he even says, for a psychopath, this is the closest I ever got to like feeling something for someone. And then. Look how he treats this person, you know, arguably the person that he he says he cares about the most in his own weird psychopathic way, he treats worse than anyone else. Even the woman and the kids that he fucking blew away at the picnic. This woman gets it worse than anybody. 
Yeah, he at least treats the kids to a nice picnic. Yeah, there's a sense of decorum at the picnic. Um, But yeah, on that note, this is the first section as well where he is like openly admitting to people that he's a serial killer. And I think that's part of it too. You know, this idea like, yes, I, I am. I am shitty. I should be punished or I should be found out. Like... Uh, you know, to go along with the imposter syndrome, like, I'm also abusive. But there's also the sense that he just wants recognition like an artist, right? So it's like playing in that sort of cycle. Yeah, because there's the tortured a, artist. Yeah, there's a comic moment when after he's, like, you know, abusing her, he goes downstairs and he sees a cop outside and he's like... Everything that this woman has said is true. I have killed 60 people. 60 people! I'm a serial killer. Please, help me. I've also been a horrible human being to this woman right here. Miss Jacqueline. Miss, would you be kind enough to sweep up your friend here and take him back inside? I can't order you both to stop drinking, but I would recommend it. (laughs) And that's a great bit, too, because then that's also, like, you know, back to your point, Andy, this whole kind of diatribe about this uncaring world that we live in, right? This hell of a town, hell of a country where no one wants to help anyone because, you know, she's screaming for help at a certain point uh, and he's like, you know, no one's going to come. Yeah, he starts screaming with her. He's like, that's not a scream. I'll give you a scream. Yeah. And he's trying to get caught and and also in a weird kind of like, what is it? uh, Another movie we all really love her. At least I know Marsh loves her. I hope you love it, Ryan. Uh, investigation of a citizen above suspicion. This like... Oh, of course. This Great like, film. look what I can prove. I can walk right up to a cop and say I'm a fucking serial killer and in this shitty-ass world, it's gonna amount to nothing. I'm not gonna get found out. And actually, there is just this like really brief shot. Uh, I don't know if you, you picked up on it, but I didn't notice it the first time, but I picked up it, I picked up on it this time uh, after he's like gone and, and confessed to the cop, we see the cop again. And when the, the, you know, his girlfriend's trying to get him found out and all this stuff's going on, we see the cop in the alley, like rousting two kids with afros. Yeah. And I think, again, that's like Von Trier's like kind of like, yeah, look at the fuck. He's never been to the U.S., but he gets it. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know? And he says, you know, the world doesn't care about great art. You know, this is, yes, the, the, the tortured, the tortured bad boy, sad boy phase of his career. And then as we transition into Incident 5, we are very clearly arriving into nymphomaniac territory as his next big sort of set piece is he's going to then emulate a Nazi execution style. So then he's already playing again with his Nazi comments at Cannes. But his idea is that he's going to set up 
six heads all on a bar alternating in direction so that he can shoot a full metal jacket bullet that'll go through all six heads. And in a way, I see where you're getting at. Maybe this, maybe you have a different take on this specifically, but it made me think of Nymphomaniac and this grand project. Like, here, I can take out six people with a single bullet. And he's like, Nymphomaniac, it's going to be this massive film with all these performers. It's going to be so long, and I want it to be released as a single thing. And yet that all came crumbling down for him. Mm -hmm. Uh, It ended up getting butchered. It ended up being released in two parts, like spread across like a few months, uh, much to his irritation. I feel like that that sequence of the film where everything sort of crumbles and starts falling apart in his hands does sort of, I think, represent his own experience with his grandest project of all. Yeah, and I mean, I hadn't thought about it specifically in terms of nymphomaniac, but I mean, it makes sense, like you putting that film particularly uh, out there, because at this point for me in, in Von Trier's career, like he's just, you know, and for Jack in the film, it's just like, everything's a mess now, you know, mm-hmm. by this point now we're in, we're in his like, you know, this, this, this freezer, this meat locker where he's been like storing his victims. And now they're just, they're just strewn about everywhere. The place is cluttered. Oh, it's such a mess. It is a total fucking yeah. mess. <laughs> and like, he's, he's getting super fucking sloppy. And yes, he has this experiment and this idea that he wants to try to pull off and it's going to be his great legacy. And I got to get this thing right but everything is going wrong, you know, like he's got the wrong bullet as one of the guys tied up on, you know, about to be shot in the head, like points out, like that's a, that's a hollow point. That's, that's not going to get through all six heads. You need a full metal jacket. Like you can't shoot us with that. It's not going to work. And he's like, Oh fuck, you're right. You know? And he's got to go back and, you know, and now he's just leaving clues everywhere. Oh, yeah. He's got to go berate Jeremy Davies oh, at the gun God. store. Love that the l- legend. little turn. Yeah. Dude, yeah. Jeremy Davies is in here for like, like literally like 30 seconds. And yet it is just like just such a perfect scene and performance by Jeremy Davies. Like I love Jeremy Davies. Dude, I learned the other day that he has no social media, but he has a 33 page PDF that's available. <laughs> On his website, that's like, this is who I am. These are my, and there's like, it's like weird. You Dude, know, I it's bet. like really bizarre as well. So check that wow. out. Check out the, the Jeremy Davies PDF. Oh man, I'm going to after this because I fucking love Jeremy Davies. <laughs> yeah. Al. And I love it. He's just like, he ends his whole thing with Al with this like mislabeled bullet, you know, and he's just like, fuck you, Al. And Jeremy Davies is just like wrecked. He's shattered, you know, because. He really, you know, prides himself in customer service. But but yeah, right. this is now, this is Von Trier, like, totally fucking jaded after everything. Even, like, more so than the sad, depressed, tortured artist. This is him now just kind of being like, what the fuck? Like, what the fuck am I even doing here? And trying to push himself, like, giving him this challenge, you know, like, this ridiculous staged six men one bullet thing it's like he it's he's just now reaching and clutching for some way to to make a splash to to feel something to have something and it was funny it was like just as irritating this time around as it was the first time around where Lars von Trier is like so skillful with the suspense of this final sequence and like that perverse desire in me to be like I want to see it happen Mm -hmm. I want to see the bullet go through all six heads like I want to see if it works and he doesn't deliver because that's when 
uh, Bruno Ganz returns to the film, or at least appears for the first time in person to then begin that descent into hell. And it, it, it was telling that he referenced Hitchcock in the making of this film because that was Hitchcock's whole career was was playing on what he felt was was inside of the audience this this desire to do bad and see bad and that's why we go to the movie theaters that we're all a bunch of voyeurs and sickos and creeps ourselves perverted psychopaths perhaps absolutely and this is also when you know when gans enters i like how you fi- he finally gets the door open in the freezer locker that he hasn't been able to open for 12 years. Uh, and he finally opens it because he needs to get a better shot with the gun because he can't focus, if you weren't getting right. all the filmmaking analogies, <laughs> as he moves his g- camera slash gun back to get the shot, right? Then Virgil appears and and brings up a point that, that to me was much more pronounced on a second view and viewing it in the lens of, of an architect. And I was just thinking like, Right, this guy's a, not an architect, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, at the end of it all, because there is, you know, he does try to build an actual house in the film several times. He demolishes it every time because it's garbage. He's also not a real architect. He was an engineer who aspires to be an architect. And so Virgil shows up and is like, weren't you building a house? Like, isn't that the title of this film? Like, yeah, we get maybe these murders are, you know, the the metaphorical house, but like... You were also literally trying to build a house and you did jack shit. This is to me where like the, the grand metaphor for the house comes in yeah. and, and Von Trier's creative legacy, you know, that what he thinks, what he what he what he says he's trying to do throughout is like build this house that's gonna be the thing that represents his legacy. You know, he says the idea is not about life, but about death, right? That that like what we're trying to build about ourselves or what, what we're trying to put out into the world is like not about like before our death. It's not about before our death. It's about after our death. You know, something along those lines is how he puts it. And what he's talking about is like the legacy, right? That that as an artist, you you create, you do all this stuff and then you die and it's like, okay, that then you're talked about, then you're written about, you know? And, and everything you've done is working so that you're leaving something behind, right? You're leaving this thing behind that people are gonna be able to look at. And and again, a static building that will stand the test of time and withstand the elements and and the great structures that, that we're still able to look at today that were built thousands of years ago or whatever, right? But the point here with Virgil, as, as you're addressing, Marsh, like, is that he was so consumed with the legacy that he kind of lost sight of the fact that he was building it along the way. And as Virgil says, well, like, you say you're into materials. Like, aren't these materials for this house? Like, you're, you're, use, you're trying to build a house with the wrong materials. And here, these works that you've created, like, that's your house. And that's when he does then that's take right. the frozen corpses and go, you're right, he builds this Goes Hannibal mode. <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah. Again, full Hannibal mode. And builds a house out of all these corpses, including Lil Grumpy with his big, you know, uh, stretched out grin now that, that he's pulled into the, the Lil he Grumpy's face. him. Yeah, he ungrumped him. <laughs> and I think Virgil says to him, your house is a fine little house, Jack. You know, he reflects on it. This, this, this house of corpses. And then, yes, they descend into the deepest, darkest bits of hell together. <laughs> 
something that after reflecting on, on both of them in our signature gauntlet style is that they both open uh, with the lead character being dead. Yeah. Right? So they both start where our character is is dead and now, you know, re- their, their journey is is trying to sort of make sense of their life and their experience from beyond the grave. That's exactly what I was going to say. The, the, the big connection between these films is that they are death journeys, right? They're odysseys mm-hmm. into the unknown. And they take, of course, you know, pretty diverging paths in, in that sense, right? As we talked about, the house that Jack built is uh, a very personal film. In a film where the the creator is reflecting on himself, his career, his life, his legacy, and also giving us, you know, uh, a fun little romp in his sick, twisted way. Uh, and this film, the journey of death, as Andy said, right, is is a reflection of the political, not the personal, the mm-hmm. history, these broader things uh, beyond art and artist, but into the world of Chilean politics and its psyche and its trauma uh, and all that in, 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 in a very subjective way, uh, not similarly subjective to Jack, but they are both, I think, aggressively subjective movies in their own way because the character's dead. So you can kind of just like cut to anything or uh, have anyone talking over the movie or, or whatever. So there is a lot of like freedom of, of form in both of these movies as, you know, journeys to, to into the unknown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Cause even with Archipelago, I was wondering at first if I was misreading the scenario, because when we're introduced to the wound in his head, it's during like a night drive and a near collision happens where they almost hit someone on the road. He's being driven around by like a spooky man who's wearing sunglasses. And it's like he's in the CIA. He does. Yeah. And the professor, when it cuts to him and you see his bullet hole, I thought maybe perhaps that he had like bumped his head on the dashboard. I thought or the something. same thing. I really did. I was yeah. like, did he just bump his? That's a pretty bad. And then I was like, oh, that's a fucking bullet hole. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was like looking closer at it. I was like, yeah, that certainly doesn't like look quite like a bump. And it, I guess, I don't know if the film ever really explicitly mentions the fact that it's a bullet hole. It was when like looking at the website that this Chilean, you know, Cinematheque had posted about the film when I was like getting a stronger sense of where his journey was taking him and how he ended up there. Because at first, in my experience watching it, I was trying to hold on to specific moments as if the, there was a reality in the film. And then there were other moments that were his journey into illusion and myth and history. Um, I started to think like, okay, no, he's like, I think he's alive and he is just like actually working on this archipelago and he's he's actually been tasked with restoring this church. But then I sort of surrendered myself and realized all of this is this death journey. It's all sort of spectral um, and haunted both by history and his own role in contemporary history. Yeah, he got domed by Pinochet, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Interestingly, the first shot of the film is the building that he's erected, which is a kind of modern apartment complex. And we see it Mm -hmm. with a circular iris effect, 
which you can read two ways. One, literally, which is he, I believe, is in the back of a police van with a bunch of other tortured and murdered people. Uh, and you can also read it as the hole in his head that we're looking out of at the building itself. Or into, perhaps. Or in, into. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, it is a, it's an incredibly disorienting opening because it is seamlessly cutting between these different spaces and I guess you could call them timelines and it doesn't really ever uh, explain itself except through cinema and through the editing and through the mm -hmm. cinematography there's essentially three zones in yes. the film there's like the nighttime hellscape yeah. of Chile and this building he constructed, his meeting with the students, the raid on the students and things happening on the street, beatings, assaults, etc. Then there's his literal journey where he has, uh, he's arrived on the Chiloe archipelago and he's been tasked with, yeah, restoring this church uh, that is like a Jesuit site. And here we have the Jesuits returning to the gauntlet after their uh, previously shameful appearance in smoke signals uh, where they're uh, <laughs> destroyed in a nice basketball game. So it's nice to also return to a film that has its sympathies against the Jesuits that's starting to become like a, a trend on the gauntlet here. But then the third space, if you want to call it that, is on the water and on the coast in history with the Chono people and his own encounters with the Spanish colonizers and then just the, the Chono people themselves and kind of getting involved with their practices and myths. Um, so those are, yeah, those are the three zones that our character is like experiencing his death journey through. And it really, it's free associational and it goes between all three, like at a moment's notice. And performers bleed into different ones too, uh, which was something that was like a little bit difficult, just not being familiar with a lot of these uh, performers, obviously, but in just like as a first watch. But there are many people who are playing as students in the uh, nighttime sequences who are also then do doppelgangers with some of the Chono people. Well, this is a, a, an attempt to grapple with what the great street philosopher Manuel de Landa would call nonlinear history. You know, an mm. approach to grapple with, with nonlinear history. Not a, not a quantifiable approach, but a, a qualitative approach where, you know, instead of, of thinking of things on this sort of linear chronological timeline, like this happened and then this happened, it's that, like, what's happening in contemporary Chile is, is, is really just an extension of what happened when the conquistadors first showed up, right? And, and what happened when the Jesuits started to try to modernize people. And, and so all these things for the filmmaker, like they're all, they're all, you know, all these instances of the past are, are alive in the present. And also, mm -hmm. for his purposes, like, the present should be alive in the past. Like, what we're experiencing today should give us access to what happened back then, you know, in the ways that certain things carry over and continue and, and cycle and revolve and that, that we all are just sort of trapped in this, this constant spiral of, of life and death and construction and deconstruction. And military checkpoints. Right, yeah, military checkpoints. <laughs> I, I, I kind of, like, picked up on what was happening once 
the 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 man, you know, the the architect with the hole in his head, uh, got onto this ferry. You know, he gets onto this ferry that then now takes him out onto the water. And at first, it just seems like just endless endless ocean ahead of him. And I was uh, immediately thinking of like him in this strange way, like this is him. Uh, on the river sticks, you know, this, this place between, absolutely between life and death, right? Between the, the underworld and the world itself. And, and that often, you know, that journey is about then a, a reflection, right? As you pass from one world into the next. Definitely. And then when he does finally arrive in this sort of seaside town, it's littered with suspicion, um, and as he's like floating and returning to his room, he's always looking over his shoulder and he can never tell, you know, who, where everyone's sympathies lie and like how he fits in. Uh, he even sees at one point, like, I can't remember, does someone say it to him or is it a message sort of asking him to join the Chiloe struggles, like the political struggles there? And he's, he's clearly spooked by that because he's like, you know, as evidenced by the gunshot wound in my forehead, uh, it didn't go very well the last time I was involved. <laughs> in local political struggle. Yeah, you know? it's a secret message inside of a matchbox. Uh, and we should point out, yeah, I guess the obvious thing, which is that the professor is a is a white guy, right? So there is this mm-hmm. element of him as like, yeah, the lib or the socialist uh, who is like, I'm an ally of the indigenous people, right? Because we see him involved in contemporary politics and then in you know these these fantasies of the past he's like trying uh to be a, a kind of savior or trying to help out but ultimately is complicit uh in you know the the crimes of the past right so i think it's important yeah that like he's situated uh there right in this film and i think too we should mention this film came out in 1992 uh which is a couple years after the plebiscite and pinochet was gone right so there were obviously uh new creative freedoms uh in chile to reflect on this you know very specific uh kind of thing uh but of course you know from what I know of Chilean cinema, mainly through Raul Ruiz, uh, they like to bend time a little bit and and get and get wild with it, you know. And I think this film, yeah, it recalls Ellen Renee and Marion Bad or, or any sort of just like dream state film that's free associating. It's match cutting across time and space and history uh, constantly. I mean, it's it's a hard uh, film to wrap your head around, you know. But it's also, as you reminded me, with the the sort of suspicions of the town, as we talked about on the Giallo episode about cinema of perception and looking. I mean, that's a lot of what is going on here is mm-hmm. him looking, people looking at him, uh, him looking at the landscape, the landscape looking at him, you know, like. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you you brought up and, and we were, I think, dying to even like work through some of this before we started recording, you know, because it was sort of starting to spill out of us. But when we were talking about um, Marguerite Dura and Renee and Robe Grier. And, and, you know, um, I had mentioned Dura and Robe Grier and their work 
on the new novel and and specifically certain things that that Robe Grier had written in his like manifesto for a new novel and his approach and like him trying to explain here's what here's what here's what we're going to be doing folks hold on this is going to get you and he talks a lot in that about the idea of for him what he calls pure description pure description and that will become this obsession with perception right because it is just about describing something that we see or that characters see and just purely describing it trying to sort of avoid metaphor avoid symbolism but instead as you said encourage associations associations that can 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 uh become multifaceted and multiplicitous even that it isn't about driving people to one particular reading or one particular point but in offering pure description uh either in the novel or in films like Hiroshima Mon Amour or Last Year at Marion Bad or the work of Raul Ruiz to a certain extent uh allowing people to to play within that freely and and openly to to sort of draw the connections that that they find for themselves and it also ties into the idea of a archipelago mm-hmm. right all these little fragments right that make up this unified thing and mm-hmm. i think i think that was ah. I, well i don't think that's an original like i think the <laughs> film drove me specifically to that conclusion at a certain point yeah, like, yeah I they, make they, no... they start talking about the 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 various islands you know on the landscape around them the way they dissolve into each other yeah i think that i think the, yeah the film like any crazy art film kind of lays it out in in little doses of like this what's going on don't you understand the structure of this movie he's like an archipelago like <laughs> oh shit yeah all right all right yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm cool with this yeah and i mean i think everything you're saying is like I- exactly how this film is designed um and the way it hops between all of these different zones uh while it is free associational it is all grounded in something uh, and it's sort of a fun viewing experience trying to piece together exactly why they're cutting to certain things or at the very least even making meaning yourself as an audience because there are times where it's very explicit so for example that first night when he's going to bed as he's laying down he realizes he has a salt shaker in his pocket and when he takes it out it's when he flashbacks to that moment when there's a raid on the apartment with all of the students and they're all frantically burning things, putting things in the garbage, flushing things in the toilet, and grabbing things to take with them. And he takes a salt shaker in just like a chaotic moment as the police are on their way. So like that's the association that took him back to that moment. But there are, there were some other ones throughout the film that I thought were 
pretty clever at least like inviting different types of reading and interpretation my particular favorite was when he's looking at the out the exterior of the church and getting sort of a lecture on how it was designed and what it was made from and the man giving him this talk is, is specifically talking about the wood and the sturdiness of the wood he says the glory of the indestructible cedars cypresses that don't let damp through oak hard as stone and then we cut to a shot of the water where all of the trees are reflected and being warped by the waves and the ripples in the water and we're panning along and we see these trees that don't seem sturdy and again you know maybe it's sort of like a an ironic visual rhyme i don't know necessarily how intentional it was but that was like how i felt in that moment and then when we return to the chapel he says immortal timber like the soul of the people right and i guess like the, in that brief moment when we do flash to the water and we're looking at the trees and we're and that's so, supposed to be representing the zone that is the past, the history, the Chono people when he's out there. Uh, and it kind of undermines what the man is saying, you know, when he's upholding the value of the Jesuits and why these churches are important. And it's maybe forgetting something about the past and it's not recognizing the real history or it's like an odd interpretation of that history. And as you point out there, like this film, there's just so many shots of reflection, of different kinds mm -hmm. of reflections, of things being reflected in glass or on the surface of the water, or even I feel a few shots that looked almost like superimpositions to me that, that seem to be reflections. If they weren't specifically a reflection, they, they looked like something being reflected against uh, you know, two different types of material, two different surfaces, two different mm -hmm. aspects of design or construction. And and again, as Marsh pointed out then, like, that's really what this film is, is about, coming at this period in time for the Chilean people to reflect, you know? Uh, boy, we just got through this very traumatic time. Uh, how did we get here? And Christ, will we ever get here again? I hope not, you know, but this this grand project of reflection that is, you know, for the Chilean people, like, I mean, God, still going on now 30 years later, like these coming to terms with the disappearances and the the violence and the, the lack of a definite answer to so many questions. And, and often one of those questions, questions is, is simply, where did my brother go? Where did my friend go? What happened to, to these people? What happened to that family down the street? What about that little student club that was meeting here on weekends, you know, and that people don't know and don't have those answers. And, and so much of, of that experience now is just about reflecting and investigating, piecing things together. And this film does have also an element of like investigation that, that starts to kind of unfold as well. Yeah, you know, not everyone is the daughter of an American businessman with connections, you know, as we discussed on 
oh, missing yeah. by <laughs> yeah. Costa Gavras. Yeah. Not everyone uh, has uh, Jack Lemon for a dad. Yeah, check the Gauntlet back catalog, <laughs> but we've talked about Chile before. Um, and yeah, yeah, totally, Andy. Uh, in a way, you almost feel like a detective yourself as an audience member oh, trying yeah. to piece together this history and this space and all of these people and how they relate because there are even people who are introduced without a lot of context, such as that man who we said looks like a CIA agent during that opening scene when he's driving the professor to the ferry and he's wearing his sunglasses. He's and- got a leather jacket like Jack from... Uh- It's true. And it is revealed later in the film that this man like is almost a devil of sorts because we get an image of him in the zone. You know, we're talking about the the, the fascist uh, police state zone where you see him, that man with the sunglasses, gun down a woman on the street like Mm -hmm. soon after she's assaulted. So in a way, he's like this dark angel that's ferrying him to the the ferry itself. That in a way, you're a detective sort of discovering that and reflecting back, you know, if you said it's not a not, it's a non-linear history and then it's a non-linear experience of figuring out how all these people relate to each other. And the the plot thickens and the mystery gets deeper when, yeah, he's introduced to uh, the Japanese consultant, uh, which is yeah. this guy, this Japanese guy on the island who uh, is employed by corporations to, you know, find something to finance, as he says, which must be inexpensive and have an emotional impact. <laughs> Yeah, how about a how about a fucking forest? How about that? You know, that's got, that's got a an emotional impact, right? Yeah, and so that's where the 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 restoration project of this old Jesuit church comes into play. And this guy similarly is just kind of like lurking around everywhere. Yeah, because isn't it also eventually revealed too that this same company or this group are deforesting? Yes. Uh, to to create paper pulp. Exactly. So as much as they are like, hey, doing the 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 sort of classic corporate move of, you know, hey, we'll donate to a charity or hey, we'll do this sort of like this uh this project for the perception of the public that we're not exploiting. We're 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 also, you know, yes, we have business concerns here, but we're also doing a nice thing here. We're restoring the church that everybody cares so much about. This great symbol of of uh, of pride and and of morality and good. I mean, once again, we're back into uh, neoliberalismo. You know, like here it is. You know, oh yeah, we'll restore this church and cut down your whole fucking forest. You know, and obviously, yeah, like you can't escape what that is is referring to. And of course, here's also where part of the kind of like bourgeois complicity of the professor comes in because he's now you know. Restoring this church, like the church, Pinochet, like this is the right wing. Like, what? Why do they always win? You know, why do they get this church restored now? You know, the Jesuits, like, fuck all this, right? But he obviously, because he's just in this like dream zone, he's just like going along with it and like <laughs> learning about the church and the architecture and the history, you know. He is very explicitly probed about his sympathies, though, in relation to that when he's asked, are you a missionary architect or are you a militant architect? So even in this dream zone, there is a great deal of stress placed upon the ethics of restoring this church and what it means. 
means for someone like him to go through with that process. Yeah, and I think overall that's the beauty of the film's structure is, you know, we are along for this ride. We're going with the flow as well. And at first, when we do just sort of like emerge in this car with a bullet in our head and this guy driving us around, we we look at him and go, oh, well, at least I got this guy here. He, he knows what's up. He's taking care of me. And, and, and we look at him at first as perhaps a, a benevolent force, you know? I mean, the guy helps him, like, patch up his hole at a certain puts point, a right? <laughs> yeah. Puts, and, and, and so we, we, we meet people and we, we find ourselves in situations where we go, no, this seems good. This seems nice. This seems right and orderly. And yet, as we reflect, as we discover, as we uh, create, new uh, networks of, of connection between time and space, uh, things start to look different. Things start to feel different. And we uncover more. We uncover things that were hidden, right? Uh, even within the church itself. Yeah, time and space is bent in a really wild way when he makes that initial journey into the past to join up with the Chono people because the way it's cut is he's having this like vision of himself floating down the river and he's like pronouncing himself and it's cross cut with uh, like fake archival footage of the Chono people that he views inside of the museum. And I did some brief research just to see if any like real footage existed, but There's they were no presumed way. extinct like in the 18th century, like that they were long gone at this point. But yeah, in that moment, I mean, look at the is... state of this print. <laughs> you know? like... Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the scan of this film is really crazy. Just as like a sidebar, it, it is it's like an untouched scan of the 35 millimeter print. And so there are like all of these artifacts all throughout. It like generally looks very nice. It's very stable, but there's all sorts of like grain and scratches like littering it. And one of the funny things about this town is that sometimes it rains during the when the sun's out, like you could be a bright sunshiny day, but there's still rain. And there's <laughs> the copy itself is interesting because the rain and the scratches on the film blend together in a really unique way that I think enhanced it yeah. uh, because then the rain itself looks like green and golden sunlight tears in the film. If they restore it, they should retain <laughs> that sequence of the film because it's very cool. Yeah. But um, yeah, just to finish the thought, he he when he is escaping into the past, it is he's floating down the river and he's making a lot of noise and the chono people in the black and white quote-unquote archival footage are reacting to the noise he's making so he's both returning to a literal past but then also a representation of the past as captured by like anthropologists i couldn't tell if that footage was meant to be at like ethnographic documentary or like this guy was a huckster and was like check out this footage we got you know <laughs> yeah. i couldn't get a read on it but. Yeah, because it doesn't look convincing. That's why I was. Yeah, like, I was yeah, like, I was this is like shitty flaherty, you know, like yeah, and I can tell. <laughs> but I think that's also like um, a point again in this in this like journey into this kind of like nonlinear uh, reflection on on the past. The aspect of like him at certain points trying to be a mediator, right, and this idea of like mm -hmm. mediating between groups and people and and what that leads to and and yes 
his good intentions and, and where those good intentions lead, right? Uh, like, again, if you reflect on the house that Jack built, right? Uh, good intentions pave the road to hell. Absolutely. Right? And, and this leads to, like, you know, a lot of awesome, like, you know, he's running through the forest, but then it's also cutting to people running from the, you know, the police in the, the shadowy, you know, apartment complex sequence. Uh, and there's, again, there's just like, as an editor, I was like, damn, they did some work on this film. Like, it, it is, it's yeah. just like really thoughtful stuff. The illusions, the associations. Uh, there were too many that I don't remember any of them, you know, because it was just constantly right. happening. And I just kept remember thinking like, damn that was that was clever Ooh, yeah that was good you know i was like my editor brain was exploding uh <laughs> during this movie but ultimately there's uh his complicity in this is revealed when uh there is this final confrontation or, or whatever is going on between the conquistadors who like are are now on the land after having been alluded to heavily and yeah. seen from a distance. Yeah, they've been making like inroads like and and they in a certain way I I kind of thought it's laid out that you know we see a sort of order and structure to their their plan to to move in and he's kind of like unwitting like an unwitting participant in it when they like first i think there's a couple guys that show up to like trade and they they dump off a bunch of barrels and the barrels are filled with i'm assuming you know rum or some kind of alcohol right because isn't there like a bit where then they use those barrels or allow those barrels to like get all the the indigenous people drunk and to sort of like pave the yeah. way for them to then just take advantage of them, invade, move in, you know, to yep. to basically get them all liquored up and then to start like emerging from the trees with muskets pointed, you know. It starts to kind of like tie in the, the, the slaughter of the students to the slaughter of the indigenous that, you know, they're, what happened is still happening, right? Uh, mm -hmm. and, and there is even this, again, like weird, strange moment of, of him looking at these coffins that they've brought for the, for the, the you know, the slaughtered in, indigenous. And, and they're very, like, narrow and small. And they kind of, like, I was looking at these coffins, they're like, taper to like a very like sharp point it's not like a coffin i'd ever seen before and and they kind of like stuff one of these like bodies in it and like kind of twist it in and he like kind of marvels at it he's like what mm -hmm. a really efficient use of yeah. space <laughs> like there's no wasted Dark space thoughts. in this yeah <laughs> yeah but like the architect brain right? as well of being like that's perfect yeah. design there's not, there's not like an inch wasted here. And then this is mirrored, of course, with the big reveal in the film of another element of design and the efficiency of space. And that's when the Japanese investor is like pulling on this chain in the middle of the church that's revealing this the space underneath it. It's like lifting the floorboards up and we see the bodies of Chono people spread out in a circle. And it's this horrifying image of the bodies being like the seeds of this church, like the death of all of these people that the church itself is built on. Yeah, I think he calls it a, a circle of death. I think he mm -hmm. calls it. And it's an overhead tableau, just like in the house that Jack built and just like in Hannibal. Mm-hmm. 
And this film did it first. This film did <laughs> the circle, the death circle, overhead tableau long before Hannibal. You heard it first here on the gauntlet. And it is like key when you think about architecture because it's as if, and I think you 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 more or less made this point, Ryan, um, but I'm just going to make it again because I feel like it, but it's uh, it's the foundation, right? Because it's mm-hmm. in in the basement. It's it's beneath the church that that the foundation, right? And any structure, any building, uh, is only as strong as its foundation. And and here we see that the foundation, this this foundation that has allowed this church to stand as long as it has, is quite literally uh, made of the bones of the, the indigenous population. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, it obviously made me think of, you know, the, the reveal of all of these other mass burial sites in Canada, another space where the Jesuits uh, certainly wreaked uh, a great deal of havoc and destruction amongst the indigenous population. And, and again, also for Chile and also in, in yeah. Chile, you know, would, and they're still finding yeah. these sites to this day. Mm-hmm. I've seen nostalgia for the light. Mm-hmm. Everyone should see that. It's a beautiful movie. I mean, this is a beautiful movie. Yeah, it really is. It's got like this copy in particular has a kind of like washed out vibe to it, which was was quite nice. It's a lot of light blues and greens, and you really do see, you know, this this beautiful place, and it's a lot of fog as well, which I I was really driving with. There's also yeah, there's also lots of moments of peace and pleasure yes. as well you know there's some like odd kind of questionable cross-cutting between certain types of romances he's maybe having with his <laughs> students that he's then like projecting on his fascination with the chono people and that that kind of stuff was like odd but it, it may have been you know sort of like a biting look at the you know the academic becoming obsessed with the people you know long gone and and that sort of thing there's also just like lots of lovely shots of rainbows yeah that's something that's peppered between these moments of horror just relaxing moments by the sea we see them harvesting lots of clams which was particularly amusing for me because earlier this week molly and i attempted to go clamming at a beach that said there would be plenty of clams and there were none and our entire dinner was (laughs) based around uh, us hoping to find a bunch of clams so i was envious of the chono people and their their luck with the clams uh, (laughs) in that sequence of the film but the film like one of the one of the final moments of the film is him sort of they're drinking out of these shells that are covered in barnacles and they're like eating i i mean i don't necessarily i don't know if they were like slugs or if they were sort of like sea urchins or something they were like slurping um some seafood and it was just a nice like communal meal moment between the two of them a moment of peace uh, outside of all of this horror and i think it it's key that that moment like follows the discoveries and the revelations and and again if if for myself i go back to the idea of you know him beginning his attempt at crossing the river Styx, uh crossing this 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 water you know between life and death that in order for him to complete that journey like he has to 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 sort of come to terms with who he is and his legacy and his life and that he isn't just this single you know actualized person like marsh brought up at the beginning you know that you know the house that jack built is you know jack is jack or Lars von trier right like it's it's about him it's about this guy 
But here, the the architect, the professor, is representing an entire generation, perhaps, an entire like group of people or a type of person that was living in Chile uh, in 1992 or 1972 or 1672, whenever, right? Um, yet that we have him sort of standing in for a lot of different people and and this journey of of acceptance or even just unearthing that he can't take that bullet out of his head you know there's no going back for him it's it's only going forward and he's only going to be able to come to to some sense of peace he's only going to be able to like accept that he has a fucking bullet in his brain uh if he can can yeah face all these things have a japanese man suddenly produce a very helpful tool, a winch to get the the floorboards up and, and find the circle of death. But yeah, it's, you know, I, I highly encourage all of our listeners to, to check it out. I'll, we'll make sure to post the link to this film. It's a breezy 76 minutes as well. So if you just want to float around, um, on an archipelago for, for 76 minutes, this is a great place to do it. So definitely, definitely check out this very little scene film. Uh, well, Marsh, like we said, I'm sure this wasn't exactly where you intended us to take our 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 journey into the world <laughs> of, you know, architects in cinema, uh, especially after several weeks of a lot of like blood and death and murder and <laughs> stuff. So, uh those are those are our picks. That's what we brought. Uh we've just been in very dark places, I guess lately. So, <laughs> so what about you? You know, when you reflect on the great architects in cinema. Uh, who comes to mind for you? Well, uh, two things, two films that link to this week's film. One being, of course, uh, Nicholas Rogue's film, Don't Look Now, where Donald Sutherland, like our character in Archipelago, is restoring a church in Venice. And it's a, a great, you know, supernatural uh haunting kind of weird horror film. Love that shit. Love Nick Rogue. Uh, and then the other that also connects to Archipelago is Edgar G. Elmer's The Black Cat, in which we have once again a fortress built on the bones of the dead from World War One, And in particular in The Black Cat, the architect is played by Boris Karloff, uh, Herr Pulzig, and he is uh, a psychopathic, maniacal, evil man who's built a fortress on top of, uh, you know, the dead of World War One, which he participated in, uh, and then he hosts, you know, uh, Bella Lugosi and a, a newly wedded American couple uh, in his fortress as they uh, play a game of uh, chess for death and black cats and torture machines and all that uh, good fun stuff. So in you know very von very von vibes as well. I, I should have seen it coming. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm like thinking, wow, really, my favorite architect movie is yeah, Twisted. Uh, so. Those two come to mind, you know, and the lake house, of course. And the lake house, of course. I also I watched the lake house in prep of of this recording, and I had a ton of fun watching it. So I'm glad that you 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 found that for us. Um, but it is up for it's going to be Marsh and I having to find something for Andy 
next week because Andy, you have the next topic. So, uh, what is our task? What is our quest? Well, you know, uh, I feel like as I as we were just sort of talking about, uh, we've had a few weeks with a lot of darkness uh, in in the in the halls of the Gauntlet. You know, a lot of like just you know descents into twisted psyches and murder and psychosexual trauma and and genocide and stuff like that so i've i've i i know that marsh was sort of intending with this week to to hit a reset button and and we we fucked up that plan i think you know he <laughs> he started with the lake house and we brought the house that jack built and this archipelago movie um so i'm gonna try to reset the vibe around here a little bit and yeah the world sucks right now and there's just nothing but shit and everywhere you look it just seems like stuff is grinding you down so so i was thinking about when i was young and i'd be like sick you know i'd be homesick from school and even still like as an adult when i'm under the weather i turn to a certain type of movie and I call them sick day movies. You know, when you're having a sick day and you just got to watch something that's going to pick up your spirits. That's going to make you feel better. You know, a little cinematic chicken soup for the soul. And I feel you both probably have those movies that you've turned to at several points in your life. You know, just that movie you can pop on and it's always going to make you feel good. So, so I feel like our listeners could use it and we could use it and the world could use it. So next week, let's have some sick day movies. Let's all, let's all get well together with some, some nice chicken soup for the soul. I love skipping school. Hell yeah. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. The old cathedrals often have sublime artworks hidden away in the darkest corners for only God to see. Or whatever one feels like calling the great architect behind it all. The same goes for murder. When I say cathedrals, it is first and foremost the Gothic buildings we admire. Here, elegant pointed arches have replaced the earlier, more primitive, rounded arches. The art of engineering is first and foremost about statics. That is so things remain standing in spite of the various forces that impact the buildings. In this way, the pointed arch created a possibility to build much higher and with much more light, but most importantly, with less use of material. I often say that the material does the work. In other words, it has a kind of will of its own, and that by following it, the result will be the most exquisite. <laughs>